So you want to know the ins and outs of managing your money. Well, lucky for you, you're just in time for another episode of Master Your Finances with certified financial planner professional, Kurt Baker. Kurt and his panel of experts are here for you and will cover topics from a legal and personal standpoint. They'll discuss tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money, and more. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Ryder University. Now, let's learn how we can better change our habits with Kurt Baker. Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Master Your Finances, presented by Certified Wealth Management Investment. I'm Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional located in Princeton, New Jersey. I can be reached through our website, which is uh, www.cwmi.us, or you can call me directly at 609 609- 716-4700. And this week, we're very pleased to have with us uh, Robert, uh, also known as Bob Cull, uh, who is a licensed New Jersey professional planner and a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners. And he's the event manager at 1867 Sanctuary Arts and Culture Center uh, at Preservation, New Jersey. Uh, he is a state licensed and nationally certified planner by profession in the field of land use and public policy, born and raised in his early years in Teaneck, Bergen County, New Jersey, a suburb known for creating a system of small neighborhood parks and playgrounds. Coming of age in the racial and economic unrest of the late 60s and Earth Day in the 70s, Bob pursued a degree in environmental science and policy at the University of Pennsylvania and a Master of City and Regional Planning at Rutgers. His uh, career in state, county, and local government, multinational corporate, and nonprofit organizations produced many plans, programs, and awards. He's a resident of Ewing, and Bob serves as chair of the Ewing Township Redevelopment Agency. Um, this is really fa- – you've got a lot of experience here, it sounds like, you know, throughout the years on all kinds of levels. Um, so what made you want to – I mean, I, I see you had the unrest of the uh, the 60s and 70s, so that was an interesting – I was pretty young at that time. Maybe you're a couple <laughs> years older than me, but I just remember – I was uh, I was born in 1960, so I was young when the 60s kind of happened. But I remember the 70s. So there's a lot going on back then. Right? Is that kind of what made you decide to kind of go into the the planning aspect of things? Is that? Yeah, I was uh, concerned about you know how can we make the world a better place, and so one of the ways that uh, uh, the town I grew up in, Teaneck, was known for its uh, uh, its small neighborhood parks, and eventually I came to know that that was intentional. To have these places for people where people can gather and people can uh, get out of their houses and and mix, uh, and as we looked at how do we deal with these problems, uh, that I found that that the places that seem to work best are places that have an identifiable place. Uh, we we identify ourselves by uh, we're from we're from Trenton or we're from Princeton or we're from Lawrenceville. Uh, or uh, Yardville, places that aren't even the names of towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of our n- neighborhoods and communities. And that's how uh, uh, we look to the the architecture and the relationships among people that happen in those places. And some of that is uh, a result of how the neighborhoods are built. So the planning uh, and the environmental protection as part of that planning uh, 
attracted me as as a, as a career to go to. And when I worked with a state in a, in a regional planning effort, we called it communities of place, that we can have successful communities if they have a placeness, whether it be a large regional center or a city or a town or a village or even a crossroads hamlet. Uh, that's what people identify with, and they'll invest in that, and the property values in that area will, be, will tend to be higher. Well, it's kind of interesting. I know that over the years, um, as an example, in our town, Plainsboro, they actually— um, and we're part of suburbia, right? So yes. you, you have New York City and you have Philadelphia, and then people just started building houses all over the place, but there was really no connectivity. So we literally had this piece of land in the middle of Plainsboro that they really weren't sure what to do. They called the Cooper Track. I remember when I first moved here, I was like, why is this huge piece of vacant land in the middle of the town? And it turned out they were trying to figure out how to best uh, utilize it, and ultimately they ended up putting uh, a town center, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting – it's like an afterthought, whereas I guess in the days of Teaneck – they were they had kind of planned it that way. It sounds like whereas when you got suburbia, everybody literally needed to, to get a car to go see their, a lot of their neighbors because they were so spread out. Everybody had a pretty good sized lot. You really couldn't walk to a lot of your friends. Uh, you had to have other types of modes of transportation. It wasn't easy necessarily to get from one place to another. And I know when I moved from Florida, one thing I noticed was there weren't a lot of bike paths. There weren't a lot of ways to actually right. get somewhere, especially as a young person where I couldn't drive. Right? If you couldn't drive, things like that. So is that kind of what you're those are all part of that, right? <laughs> yep. And uh, so, yeah, we're we're pleased that also the uh, the county has uh, put in, invested in uh, a, a bike path along Scotch Road. So that's another way to get to the 1867 sanctuary. Right. But that's what the project that I'm involved in, and I was inspired by a book by Dar Williams, the uh, the singer and songwriter, uh, who wrote about uh, wrote a book, "What I Found in a Thousand Towns." And she calls it a traveling musician's guide to rebuilding America's communities, one coffee shop, dog run, and open mic night at a time. With the idea that uh, she observed in uh, Beacon, New York, in Lowell, Massachusetts, Phoenixville, PA, uh, and other places that were getting run down, that as people established these kind of gathering places, and especially around music and culture, that they lifted themselves off the ground and they got energy back. And they rebuilt themselves, and they got actually community back. People started talking with their neighbors and doing things, getting active in the PTA and all those kind of things. So uh, uh, when the uh, so, so not every building is a private property, and some had civic purposes, some had religious purposes. So when the um, when when the building, the 1867 sanctuary, became available for that kind of purpose. That was something that uh, that interested me for a number of reasons. Okay, it sounds like a, a, a worthy cause. So can you explain a little bit about exactly what is the 1867 Sanctuary and how, how it f- kind of fits in? I mean, why you were drawn to that and what purposes it serves or has served in the past? Yep. Well, people in the area uh, know, know it as the old Presbyterian Church in Ewing. Uh, it's on Scotch Road at the Bend uh, when uh, uh, Scotch Road uh, uh, comes down from what— used to be 95 and uh, uh, turns into Ewing. It's surrounded by a large cemetery, the Ewing Church Cemetery, that uh, the land for which was bought in 1709 and has some 40-plus uh, 40 veterans of the uh, Revolutionary War buried there, uh, as well as uh, a lot of other notables, including uh, Paul Whiteman, the jazz musician, and a number of the Roebling family and, and so forth. So the... Um, uh, when 
we moved down here in the 1970s, late 1970s. Uh, we became a member of that church around 1980, uh, and so I've been a member there for about 40 years. So I'm very familiar with the building mm-hmm. and the other uh, programs. At at one point, the uh, the church leaders were very concerned about the structural integrity of the church, for um, for particular reasons. The, uh, the and they actually decided they didn't want to risk collapse of this big stone structure uh, that was built 150 years ago uh, and have it fall into the street or whatever. And so they decided to demolish the building safely. Oh my goodness! And wow. uh, there are so many people that go by there, whether they work at DOT or whether it's just from. Uh, living in the area or having gone there for Christmas Eve services, whatever their their connection was, uh, is that there's got to be another way uh, for this. And so some Preservation New Jersey, which is a statewide historic preservation advocacy organization uh, that's been around since 1978, had a couple of architects on its uh, board. Then uh, some of them took a look at the place and said, there doesn't seem to be any, any uh, structural problem with this place, uh, that there was just kind of an accidental thing that happened. Uh, and so they recommended that Preservation New Jersey get involved and actually oh. take on this place as their first physical, as they say, brick-and-mortar project since oh, it was, it was founded it was in per- 1978. Okay. Uh, so it is there. It, it, in, in May 2012, they took on a 50-year lease for the building. And uh, so... As, as kind of an experiment and adaptive reuse is the term of art that they use. How can you reuse the building? How can you adapt the building for a different use than it was before? Its use was as a church, but it was also, in its early days, it was the biggest building in town, and that's where they had town meetings for uh, putting water lines in West Trenton or, or other things in addition to its service as a church. Um, so... Uh, we looked at the uh, at what could be done. We had a grant from the um, State Historic Trust as well as the Princeton Community Foundation to explore the kinds of things that could be done with a with a building like that. Uh, uh, it's a good size; has two hundred seats, two hundred right now, um, and uh, and envisioned a lot of different examples and decided that it would be great as an art center uh, and because it has wonderful acoustics. Uh, and it's uh, it's accessible. It's already built with uh, wheelchair accessibility, uh, and that uh, uh, yeah. Let's see if we can make a go of this as a successful historic preservation project. Wow, that's amazing! Um, so uh, you're listening to Master Your Finances. We'll be right back, right back to learn more about the building and what you've been doing with it. This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. Uh, I'm Kurt Baker here with Bob Call, who is with the um, who is the events manager at six, 1867 Sanctuary Arts and Culture Center. And you, just before the break, you're talking about how this was the first project that the New Jersey like Preservation Society took on. You, you want to mind tell us a little bit about what that is and why it was created and kind of what its its 
its goal is, so to speak, right? Because that was created actually the pretty not too distant past, if you take it, you know, from a long perspective. Right. It's not that long ago it was created, really. Well, it was uh, Preservation New Jersey was founded in 1978, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, there's a, a great deal of history in New Jersey uh, at, because of its location between New York and Philadelphia, as well as the, the many resources that the, that the state has and the population that uh, established itself at, in centers throughout the state very early on. So a lot of people that uh, got together, uh, architects, historians, artisans, um, people involved in, in, in all, all kinds of aspects of history, thought that having a statewide organization to represent historic and advocate for his, the preservation of historic sites uh, and districts, uh, taking advantage of what the National Trust for Historic Preservation was doing and advocating, New Jersey set up its only f- affiliate of the National Trust for Historic Preservation through Preservation New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And what their role was at the beginning, they had a board of, of experts that when somebody wanted to establish a historic district or uh, save a particular place, they would provide expert advice uh, to, to folks. So they didn't necessarily get their hands on uh, a particular project, but did provide an important angel kind of role, not, not an angel investor kind of thing, but, uh, uh, but some, somebody to oversee that and, and guide people doing these things. Uh, so uh, they've, had, uh, uh, they've had courses and conferences and, and uh, how, to, how to do these various techniques. So when the... Um, but they, they didn't really think they had the capacity to do their own project being scattered around the state. But when the uh, demolition was actually a contract for demolition was signed on the building, which was built in 1867, hence 1867 mm-hmm. Sanctuary, um, they saw that there was a local group of people that was not only highly motivated, but raised about a... Uh, over $250,000 in the depths of the, reception, the recession wow, in 2009, good. cash on the barrel head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, all told, it's raised about half a million dollars toward the kind of repairs and, um, uh, and, and operation of the building to be able to get it to open again as it did in uh, uh, 2016. So um, we were kind of we're a committee of preservation in Jersey that's focused on this particular project. Uh, so preservation in Jersey goes on and continues its traditional role, and we're kind of a little laboratory for the kind of things that uh, representing uh, how adaptive reuse might work best. So we're in close touch with a lot of members of the board, even as a change turnover over the years, um, to you know, continue those relationships and see how we can guide and advise other communities and other property owners how they might be able to use their historic sites. So it's not, even if you go into a downtown, like a Burlington City or something, uh, or any any downtown, you see that there uh, are building fronts that were probably somebody's house at some point, and they became a law office. And then they became, they put bigger windows in front, and might have become a dentist's office, or might have become a storefront. And then... At some point, it might even turn back to residential. So that kind of uh, that kind of ad- ad- adaptation is is a very common thing, and that it's actually uh, much 
less expensive and much more environmentally and ecologically proper to do that than to destroy a building and build a new one, even if you build a, a brand new green building. There's a, a, a book called The Economics of Historic Preservation, a Community Leader's Guide, that's by Donovan Ripkema, R-Y-P-K-E-M-A, uh, who uh, talks about the many strategies that are used and many of the uh, compelling aspects. So it's a book you can get on Amazon or look at uh, on placeeconomics.com uh, that gives you all the, all the insights of how historic preservation is really um, a growth strategy. Uh, there are other articles, Craftsman's blog uh, talked about uh, uh, five worst mistakes of historic homeowners. And so one of them is taking out their uh, original windows. And you see all the ads are, well, we can give you great new replacement windows, argon gas, high uh, energy efficiency. But as long as you maintain your historic windows, the, um, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the sliding um, uh, glass windows, they're made of old growth wood, mm-hmm. which is much more um, uh, durable than any product that you have now. Um, and as long as you maintain it, you, you paint it and... Uh, and clean it. There's actually much more, uh, and, and provide some weather stripping. They're much more efficient than the windows that you might put in now. And now, they'll, they'll, now that's counter to what I would have thought, right? Because yeah. you, I mean, they have all these triple panes, and they have all this stuff. They complain, you know, they they, they sell and say, "Hey, this is the most efficient window you'll ever have," so to speak. But well, you're saying that's actually not true. The other windows lasted a hundred years. The new windows <laughs> that they put out, you'll have to change them in eighteen. 20 years. Right, right. So as long as you have to, but you have to maintain them, obviously. So that's just, that's the difference. Anything, yeah. yeah, well, anything you have to maintain at some level. So that, that's very, that's, that's interesting. I never would have thought of that. That uh, Yeah, the old glass windows are kind of neat. So how do you, I guess you can repair them, right? So, I mean, some of that old glass I've seen, it's actually, uh, I mean, you can tell because it's not exactly um, clear all the way through. I don't, I'm using the wrong word, but it's, yeah. but it's, you know, how you, you can actually tell it's there, whereas newer windows, they're, you know, you can't tell because they, I guess windows are actually liquid, right? They actually flow down over time. Yeah. So, so the bottom becomes cool thicker liquid, than the yeah, top, right? right. So and that's what I'm thinking to, of. That's kind of interesting. you have to worry about that uh, in, in the 1867 sanctuary. It has beautiful stained glass windows. Okay. Some of which were um, original to the building in 1867. Right. They, they're the ones facing Scotch Road. The ones on the side were put in in the 1960s to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the building. And so we had a glass conservator come in and say, well, there are some places where uh, the glass is gradually, you know, <laughs> not quite melting, but it's it, it's like get, it's flows. thickening at the bottom. Right, yeah. right, right. So, so you do have to uh, take care of the lead in there. You do have to uh, take out the glass and 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 fix it. So that's uh, a potentially very very expensive project that that's coming up. We did have a couple of windows that we did fix with some uh, grant assistance to uh, to make sure they stayed stayed stable. But it's. Um, uh, they're beautiful and they're solid and well made, so you know we, okay. we do do the best we can to uh, to keep that resource and it's very attractive. Yeah, I know the historic society. I know that every once in a while I hear about buildings that people aren't even aware of, and then they find out there's some history behind it. So before people do things, they really should learn a little bit about the history of the building too, because I guess it's readily available in the towns, right? So does this, this, do they keep track of things like that? Like you know the building itself, and say, hey, you know, do you realize what this was used for and how it. You know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, whatever the case may be. Every town has its planning office, right. and uh, uh, many towns have a historic preservation commission. Right. And uh, many of those towns are um, 
a, uh, a registered, uh, they're, they're kind of a certified historic preservation commission that got that certification working with preservation in New Jersey in the past. So they do things to make sure that they're up to date on, on what the uh, opportunities are. Uh, so if somebody wanted to um, be, have their house registered as an historic site, that, um, that doesn't necessarily prevent it being used or changed in the future in terms of private property. Mm -hmm. um, it can affect that if the town wants to bulldoze a, um, a road through your house, then, then that would be a factor that would... That would be very rude. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's one of those mitigating factors. Right. But, uh, uh, but it is something that that recognition uh, can help. Some people feel that it reduces its property value, but for those interested in in the his history of the building, it'll actually increase the property value to, uh, to those people. Yeah. I mean, I think the older buildings are kind of interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, it has some history behind it. It's kind of, I don't know. I think they're nicer, um, in many ways. They have a lot more character. I mean, you, I mean, the houses we buy today, unfortunately are, are, you know, literally you go three houses down, you're gonna have this exact same house. You know, it's, it's not as interesting, I guess, as some of the older houses. And usually that designation applies to, um, what the exterior looks like mm -hmm. and its relationship to the community. The 1867 Sanctuary has, uh, is not on the state or national register at this point because it's an application you need to go through. At the time we were working with the building, um, the money that we had for the application, we decided to put into mm -hmm. getting the building back open again. Um, but we, are, uh, we do have a certificate of eligibility that we can pursue that. The, uh, uh, the building has been transformed inside a number of times since it was built. The uh, front wall had been stenciled uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and solid, so nobody thought that they could keep the stenciling maintained for, for 100 years with candles in there or whatever they had um, to, to light the place. So um, the interior has changed, and even when we got the building, Preservation New Jersey got the building, then we removed some of the pews and made room in the front for a grand piano and removed some pews in the back for passing space but, uh, um, and, and took out some carpet so that it made the sound a little bit more live. So it's a wonderful performance space. Even though the pews are original, the seating is in pews and those are original to the building, uh, and it, it really creates an, a really nice sound in the space. Well, that's kind of neat. I mean, I know the historic buildings are pretty cool. Maybe when we come back, we can talk a little bit about, like, types. Of, once you're designated historic, what things have to stay the same usually and what things maybe you're allowed to update. Because I hear people, there's pros and cons on that. So you just have to be aware of what you can and can't do. You're sure. listening to Master Your Finances. We'll be right back. This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, certified financial planner professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, Master Your Finance. I'm Kurt Baker here with uh, Bob Cole, and we're talking about his historic buildings, specifically um, 1867 uh, Sanctuary Arts and Culture Center, uh, which was the first one that Preservation New Jersey actually took on as a physical project. Um, and I just know talking to people who have either bought or owned historic real estate, there are some things you can do and you can't do to the buildings. I think a lot of times people don't really understand it. So maybe you can tell us 
some of the things you've learned and maybe what how that applies to this building itself um, so people kind of understand things you're allowed to do typically and things that maybe you're not allowed to do. You at least have to ask, I guess, right? Sure. Well, the um, 1867 Sanctuary is kind of an oddity in the area. When it was built two years after the Civil War, it was the fourth house of worship on that very spot, uh, the first one being around 1712. And then uh, so there was a building there within sight of one of George Washington's columns uh, when he marched on the Battle of Trenton. Uh, and uh, so when they built the building, they used locally quarried sandstone. So it's a big big brownstone building in the middle of farms and forests uh, when it was originally built. Um, so it, uh, it, it was really looking very much to the future. The only uh, difference really from when it was originally built is that the original steeple was blown down in a storm, so they put a shorter steeple on the top. Uh, we, um, the, the church, when it had it in the 1980s, um, included uh, a wheelchair ramp on, on the left side of the building, so that in, in improved that access and also installed uh, central air conditioning as well with a big unit out the back. So those kind of things that are health and safety are allowed to be installed when, you're, uh, when you have a historic building. You just have to be sensitive to not changing the, um, the look of the building too much. And now there are heating and cooling units that can be put on the outside of buildings that just have a, uh, a small uh, separate unit and a, and a pipe that goes to a small um, vent that's on the inside of the building. So it's pretty, pretty effective. Um, so we do have a, we did work with a conservator to come up with a plan for um, taking care of the stonework on the outside of the building. Um, and uh, beyond that, the, uh, uh, we also, when we looked at possible um, uses and uh, of, of the building, we looked at improving its accessibility for right. So you have for to disabled. be ADA compliant, right? I'm assuming at some at some year, maybe you did it before this, but I know fairly recently, if you do anything to building, you have to make it ADA compliant, which means you need certain ramps and certain access and things like that, right? Right. Well, and like building codes, there are yeah. certain allowances for right. buildings that are where the options are limited. Right. Um, right. Right. We're working on an ADA plan for this for this building, although um, having worked in in uh, uh, with a nonprofit, Voices Corral, as uh, president of their of their board for a while, and we looked at what's needed to um, to, to meet uh, the the needs of the ADA needs of our people coming, uh, and so. But that was basically what we did in relation to our venues. So now that I'm a venue, <laughs> I have to look at it in, in a in a bit of a different way. Right. Um, so we are not fully ADA compliant. We are we, we are wheelchair accessible. Uh, and we made sure that uh, we could do that. Other things to be fully ADA is to make sure we have large print programs for everything, which we have done from time to time. Sometimes um, uh, uh, projecting words uh, that people are doing or having a, an interpreter or, um, uh, or or kind of a closed caption kind of thing, which we haven't um, had the resources to do or the demand to do at this point. But those are things that we could look at Look at it in the future. Okay, so uh, so what types of activities have you actually started doing at the building? I mean, when you went through all this, obviously you preserved it, and it's an art center like that. Now, so what types of things are actually happening there, and how are we using the building now since things are a little different than they were when it was built? Right. Well, <laughs> um, we're not part of the church anymore, so okay. people um, people ask about that. They see people walk into it and they think, "Oh, is there a mass going on?" No, they're we're trying to 
trying to amass people for a concert or something. So um, we are, uh, we mostly get the revenues to operate the building through uh, concert ticket sales, um, through event rentals, through memberships, and through donations that may be restricted or unrestricted. Um, and uh, we're in our last quarter of our third year in operating the building. And so our attendance is less than we need to have to really sustain the building at this point. But people say that uh, uh, when I talk to other people with other venues, it often takes maybe, like a small business, takes maybe six years before you hit your tipping point right. to know that you're going to be able to go forward. And some arts venues have said, well, it's taking them longer for um, for people to trust that they present good people. <laughs> um, and uh, so we've consistently had good people. We have uh, uh, we have artists that have heard about us and come from as far away as uh, Rome, Italy, Sydney, wow. Australia, uh, Northern Ontario, down to Buenos Aires. <laughs> so they, they regard the acoustics uh, of our place favorably to Carnegie Hall. Oh, my um, gosh. And fantastic. although it's at 200 seats and and, and uh, they don't have to rent <laughs> that, that uh, uh, at that price. And the parking's free for people that right, come right. Um, across the street. Uh, so the uh, but the uh, the expenses that are primarily for heat and insurance or air conditioning, as I said, we're centrally air conditioned, um, comes to nearly five thousand dollars a month to operate mm-hmm. the building. Um, so, so while some months we're in the in the black operationally, there may be some repairs or uh, infrastructure improvements that we need to make. Um, but we're not to the point that um, we're 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 sustaining ourselves yet, although the the trends are in the right direction. So with uh, with three years under our belt and going to our fourth year, uh, we're now looking. We can't be invested in for a financial return, uh, like a like a for profit enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we can do is um, people that might invest in us through sponsorships or advertising or whatever are presented in a good light right. by if they uh, want to um, advertise in our concert programs or underwrite a series or, or a specific special event or something. Um, so those are things that we're looking to put together packages to be able to do for, um, for individuals or organizations or businesses uh, in, the, uh, in the area because it's a, we've established, I think, a good reputation. Um, and uh, we are, uh, we're, we're pretty well known, although we're still getting people in for the first time. Um, we have a very active website at 1867sanctuary.org. Uh, we've got an email list of uh, about 2,500 addresses, a social media following on Facebook, Insta- Instagram, Twitter, of about that same amount. Uh, that's very active. Uh, you'll see a lot of clips from, from shows there. Um, we advertise in monthly in US1, in the mm-hmm. Union Observer, and also for the Jersey Jazz Society magazine for our jazz concerts. So, um, yeah, we, we get a lot of outreach there. So, so do you have a lot of repeat, like, because um, I'm, I'm just thinking, like, out loud, because, like, we hold an event every year at, at a place, and mm-hmm. so every, something, how it adds up. So you have certain concerts, you have corporate events and things like that where people, if they do it once, it might be like a recurring type event they may have, because um, I would think that's how you could kind of build a little bit of a base. You know, if a, you know, if a business says or a concert says, hey, we're going to come back every September, you know, then you kind of got um, – you know, something to build on, right? And then people go, oh, well, I know there's going to be whatever, a jazz concert in the in the yeah. fall, and they go, oh, great, let's go to that, right? Uh, and well, we're starting like to that. do that, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> we have about 20 concerts a month in there. Oh, so wow, it's a decent amount. That's a and, lot. And, and I'll get uh, 
um, on average, two requests to to perform in the space a day. Okay. Which is, we usually have concerts on Friday nights, Saturday nights, right. uh, Sunday afternoons, and then some Saturday afternoons, and okay. sometimes Wednesday nights. Um, so that's a limited supply for really a lot of demand, right? True. Uh, by by uh, excellent artists, but we want to, uh, we can't. Um, well, the quality of the artists is excellent, and I'll audition them by video and and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, a lot of them are names that people haven't heard of before, so I'll put a video of them up on the website and in our you know social media the and our email blast so that people are introduced to them so that they know that this is uh, someplace you're. Might be desirable to spend twenty dollars on our general admission, or cheaper for our members. And if you're a student, um, uh, such as a writer student or, or a high school student, uh, it's only five dollars. So it's we're, oh, that's we're, very we're, expensive. We're a great cheap date. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, so you have a lot of events going on there, and you're really connecting to the community and so forth. So um, I mean, that's uh, amazing. Um, You've been listening uh, to Master Your Finances, and we're going to be right back. This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, certified financial planner professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Finances. Uh, Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. I'm here with uh, Bob Cull, uh, who's the events manager at 1867 Sanctuary Arts and Culture Center uh, with the Preservation Preservation New Jersey. And it's interesting. So you renovated the building. You got it up and running. Uh, you kind of saved it, really. And now um, you're using it for concerts and things like that. So what other types of activities are actually going on there? And you're kind of like really three years into this growth thing. People are finding out about you. They're starting to do more and more events there and things like that. So you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So in addition to being a land use planner, uh, sitting here with a financial planner, <laughs> I'm becoming an event planner as well. You like so, that word planner, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> uh, well, it's that, it's that forward-looking thing. Um, oh, yeah, I agree. And uh, uh, we have a 200-seat capacity. Uh, that's not movable seats, but it's uh, uh, for concert and event venues. Nationally, that's a sweet spot. Uh, a lot of places are too small, maybe 50 seats, uh, mm-hmm. or there'll be a thousand seats and nobody can afford it. Right. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's really a, it fits in a good niche uh, for so many uh, different kind of concerts, um, as well as small theater productions, kind of like the one act plays or the one set plays, um, and a lot of life events. Uh, we have two weddings this December. Um, we've had uh, a number of. Uh, Funerals and memorial services, and you know, located within the bounds of a cemetery, that uh, becomes convenient. Um, and uh, uh, we've also had a couple of bar mitzvahs already in that in that place. Um, we're the rehearsal t- home for two regional choruses. Um, in April, we'll be ha- hosting our third international young artist competition for chamber musicians. So oh, wow. basically, kids from six. To not so much kids and 30 years old, but the winners of those competitions have won um, um, instruments worth several thousand dollars, or they get to be on stage in Carnegie Hall or Disney Hall in Los Angeles or in Seoul, Korea, or 
um, uh, in, or in, play, in halls in Europe uh, as a result of their, uh, their performance. So it's, a, um, it's the Global Music Partnership puts that together. And so it's also been a favorite space for recording albums, one that has been a live jazz album recorded there, and then there was a studio session album recorded by the Jack Furlong Quartet. Um, we are also um, have some of our jazz concerts are recorded uh, for radio broadcast on uh, WWFM, their Jazz on Two uh, station that goes you know internet uh, largely, but it's HD two. And so Robert Bullington has a show that's on the fifth Sundays. So he's been uh, using uh, jazz artists like Richie Cole or uh, Mauricio de Souza's uh, Boss of Brazil or some of the other um, interesting jazz uh, musicians. He'll he'll do a show that broadcasts from their live performance, but also interviews with the with the artists. So it's been um, it's been an exciting ride, and we are, are looking at ways that we can continue to do that, including with singer songwriters, folk musicians. Other aspects, we're looking at the uh, webcasting of concerts and seeing if that's something that will encourage people to uh, not just stay home and, and watch their Netflix or their computer, but to actually uh, to separate from their couches and come and, and, and enjoy uh, the things that you have in a live concert that you can't get uh, by watching it on the tube or listening to it through your, uh, through your headphones, uh, because even the sound in the place... I'll say with an acoustic concert, I'll say at one point, shut your eyes because the sound's not just coming from the stage, but it's bouncing off the walls in particular ways. Mm. Uh, that that is just spectacular. So it's um, um, the, the the idea of the adaptive reuse is to transform a um, 152-year-old historic landmark building not just as a as an old dead thing, but right. as a as a living legacy. So something that's very active. Uh, and uh, and that showcases the creativity and the legacy of live artists uh, and the attractiveness that arts and culture bring to our communities. It's a it becomes a, a, a vibrant space and a vibrant community. Uh, and uh, so we look forward to being a positive role model in the same way that Dar Williams talked about uh, these places and in, in in other communities throughout the country and on her tours. So have you seen a lot of the, like the community people like really embrace this, the local people in Ewing and places like that? Because you don't, I mean, in this area, you don't like think of Ewing, oh, you're going to go to a nice a concert hall, which yeah, you've got one, right? Yeah. So you've kind of got this little piece that wasn't really there before. Um, so how has the, like, the surrounding community kind of uh, embraced this, this, uh, this kind of this new feel, right, where you got a little bit more vibrancy at the building that maybe really wasn't, it was used a totally different way? People come in and they are uh, when they come in for the first time, they're glowing with all the things that you know that they've experienced and say what a wonderful experience it was. And the artists feel that way too, um, compared to a lot of places where they play clubs and bars and restaurants uh, where people don't really hear them and there's a lot right. of noise. The artists can hear themselves and they have an audience that's very appreciative and attentive of what they're doing, and will even buy their CDs that we have in in, in the back. Um, so the the um, what we're working hard uh, on now is how how the stickiness of you know people actually you know the the behavioral modification to say that it's mm -hmm. it's it's safe to go out it's a good thing to go out and actually since we started we found that there are many more opportunities for live music in Mercer County than there were when we started three years ago even three years ago um, so. Uh, 
we, we have a particular niche uh, of the kind of concert environment that we have. But uh, I think that as we uh, work with uh, behavioral modification of people in the community and they say, oh, this is a great thing to do and it's not an expensive place to go and the parking is free and we even have free sta- snacks at intermission. Wow. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, com- so come on out. And it's uh, um, it, it's uh, – and, and if you want to have your event there, we'll have a lot of people that come for events. We have an open mic on the fourth Fridays of each month, except for okay. December, because that's too close to Christmas. So we kick that into Jan- right. January. Um, uh, but we have a lot of great talent that comes to the open mics. We now are working through the uh, Trenton African, the, the African American Cultural Center of Mercer County. Right. Uh, and, uh, and Todd Evans, they now have a poetry open mic that they had been holding, they're still holding in Starbucks, I think, in oh, Trenton, wow. but they're holding one at the 1867 Sanctuary, usually on the uh, on the third Wednesdays of each month. So uh, all these things you could see up on our up on our website or uh, join our email list. I send out one email a week that uh, I don't burden anybody, yeah. but just profiles the uh, highlights the upcoming shows. Uh, and if you want to book a show, then the uh, my booking information is available from that from the website as well. And happy to. Uh, Talk to anybody about about anything. Uh, well, that's fantastic. I know one thing that you mentioned over and over again uh, in different ways is that some of these older buildings that people forget that we didn't have microphones and speakers and all these things. So literally, if somebody's talking from the pulpit, you you had to design the building acoustically in a way that everybody could hear you. Like mm-hmm. the person in the last pew could hear you just as well as the person in the first. And they spent there's a lot of engineering that goes behind that, a lot of material engineering and things like that that isn't necessarily thought out as carefully in most buildings. You kind of just put up a box and then you figure it out later, right? You know, right. You, then you adjust. <laughs> they don't really design the building for acoustics where, you know, back in the day when they built this building, it sounds like that's the way it was designed, and it sounds like they did a really good job with it. It's great for uh, people with theatrical voices right? Uh, or, or that, that sing up front. And we've actually um, removed the pulpit and the lectern okay. from the front to make a um, – a wider space and, uh-huh. and, a, and a more open space that gets sound out better. Um, so it's a it's a very welcoming place. Is place that doesn't um, at that time building Presbyterian churches it was very very plain inside. Right. So there's mm-hmm. not a lot of religious iconography except for the windows, which you don't even see at night. Right. Um, so it's a uh, it's a comfortable uh, comfortable space for people to come in. Uh, and the uh, uh, the yeah. So so, so we've. Um, our our heating is in the is in the steam heat that's underneath the pews, so everybody that's seated oh, okay. is comfortable as long as they don't put their feet on the uh, on the metal pipes and and melt themselves to the uh, melt their shoes to the pews. But it's um, uh, but we do also recognize that it, that it is in pews and not fully stretch out seating for mm-hmm. the most place. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, we do have an intermission in shows to make sure that right. people aren't sitting for. You know, more than an hour, and right, you, get, right. you can get up and walk around. Uh, we also, in addition to the wheelchair accessibility, we do have cutouts uh, in the middle of the uh, of the aisle for um, for people to for wheelchair access or people that need the additional space. Well, that's fantastic, uh, Bob. I appreciate you coming on today and talking about how we took an old historic building and saved it. First of all, you saved it, and thank you for that. First of all, and that's a you, work in progress. Well, you, well, you, <laughs> you, you, they didn't tear it down yet, <laughs> right. so that's a big deal. Uh, and now you've repurposed it, and now you're bringing back a cultural center. So it's kind of like a win-win on lots of level, on a physical level, as well as on a cultural level. 
and you're getting a lot more younger people, it sounds like, you know, a lot of these bands and people coming out and doing community activities. And uh, I mean, I'm sure it's for all ages, but I love the fact that people are getting out and you've got the price point where um, it's not too expensive. So pretty much anybody can come out and do it. Um, so you've been listening to Master Your Finances. I'm Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Uh, I can be reached um, their website, which, C, which is cwmi.us. You can listen to th this podcast and all the podcasts at masteryourfinances.us. And remember, together we can master your finances so you can enjoy financial peace of mind. That was this week's episode of Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Tune in every Sunday at 9 a.m. to expand your knowledge in building and managing your wealth. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Master Your Finances to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University.